agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government has the government love. The government has the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, Cleveland area attorney and defender of freedom, Jay Carson. Hey, Mike. Good morning. Hey, hey Jay. How are you doing this morning? Well, after after 15 rounds, uh, <laughs> victorious, right? That, that, I, guess, I guess if you're a McCarthy fan, yes, uh, definitely so. And we will, of course, be talking about that as well as a bunch of other things. Today. There has been a, a few other things going on, though certainly the speaker voter votes have overshadowed most everything else. There was uh, Chief Justice Roberts gave his annual report on the state of the federal judiciary. Uh, we're going to be talking about that. and. President Biden's judicial nominations two years in. Uh, I want to get your take on Donald Trump's full tax returns. Uh, and also, I think we should look look toward the rest of the year, the sort of things we expect or not really don't expect because we wouldn't be expecting them. But anyway, what we think the big stories will be and maybe a few other things here and there. And we will get going with that in just one second. All right, Jay. So after five days and 14 failed votes. Kevin McCarthy is finally Speaker of the House in the 118th Congress. It's the first time in a century that a Speaker election has gone to multiple ballots, and those 15 votes it took are the most since that 44-vote marathon way back in, I believe it was 1859. Um, and of course, with a 10-seat margin in the chamber and the Democrats unified in opposition to him, McCarthy well, he had to make more than a few concessions to get enough of those 20 anti-McCarthy Republicans to either support him or vote present, as a number of them ended up doing. He got 216 votes for him and six of those present votes. And, Jay, you know, when we talked about the speaker vote at some point after the midterms, I think you you thought, you predicted that Republicans would sort of figure this out behind closed doors in their caucus. and then. Yeah as almost always happens, right, certainly within living memory of pretty much everyone, that McCarthy would be elected on the first ballot. And that obviously didn't happen. So I, I took the 100-year, uh, yeah, this is what has happened every time. And So yeah. why not? I mean, what's your, what's your before we get into the specifics, uh, why did this not get worked out behind closed doors? What's your take? So I, I wish I had some insightful political reason to say, here's what happened. Here's why uh, it, it it didn't get worked out behind closed doors or, uh, or on, you know, a second ballot or something like that. Um, but I keep just coming up with um, these people are idiots. Uh, and that, that might not seem to be like the real insightful political critique but i think it just it may be accurate and i'm i'm not i'm uh I'm, I'm struggling to come up with any other explanation um which people when you say these people there there are a lot uh there are a lot of potential idiots to go around so who are you thinking of yeah, there are, no I, I the the um the uh mccarthy dissenters uh, okay in, in that interesting i was well thinking, i mean well, well, put I, this way there's a lot of blame to go around in that um, the rest of the, the party, you know, not being able to corral them in the first place. Um, but I, I mean, I'm not sure what this whole 
you know, mini rebellion was, was even about. Hmm. Um, see, I, you know, if you look, okay, that's interesting because I, I see it very differently than you do. And okay. I think that's because this goes back to sort of my fundamental belief that you are desperately clinging you're a desperate clinger, Jay, to this <laughs> to this notion that the Republican Party in 2023 is even even faintly resembles the Republican Party that you and I came up in. And I, I don't think it does. I don't think it has for quite a few years. And so using the logic of what you expect the Republican Party to be, well, of course, this makes no sense. But I think that's yeah. the logic of that could be a fair criticism. Okay. Yeah. So here, here's how I see it. When you said these people are idiots, the first thing I thought of was, well, one of the number one rules of running a, 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 an organization is to, a democratic organization, at least, which the House you know, is, is to make sure that you have your votes counted, have your votes in line. Yeah, before don't you take, take the vote. vote unless you know the outcome. Yes. Exactly. And so when you said these idiots, I thought, well, you know, I don't know what kind of whip operation McCarthy had going on there, but clearly if they took this vote without having nailed down those things, that's, they're the idiots. Um, so that's one way to look at it. Um, but. Oh, and I, and I would, I will, um, I'll partially agree on that, but go ahead. Okay. Well, another way to look at it is they didn't think they knew they didn't have the votes, but they counted on at least enough of those dissident anti-McCarthy voters to feel the pressure and sort of get with the program in a, in a public vote that they wouldn't want to sort of publicly be out there being anti-party and, and so forth. And that to me is a, was a huge miscalculation as well, because it seems to me that pretty clearly there is a group of, well, around 20 people, right, in the in the Republican caucus who don't really care that much about the, the, the party per se. So that's another way yeah. to look at it, I think. So go ahead. You were going to. So, no, well, my uh, I would agree with you on the, the don't take the vote if you don't uh, have the numbers. But I think also you reach a point and this kind of goes to your second point where you sort of call their bluff. If you if, look, if you're not going to have the numbers, you're not going to have the numbers. OK, let's vote. And you guys can. Uh, be out there, you know, hanging out on the branch as the ones who are holding up um, a Republican speakership, um, which is which is sort of what he did. Although the the idea that it goes this many rounds, this many times, um, and, and I guess I'm I, my, I'm I'm perplexed that you know back when we talked about this before, I thought yeah, there's going to be some people who are going to gripe and they're going to want concessions, uh, and and that's that's not super uncommon right um but there was there was no um deep ideological uh divide really really driving this um you i mean no <laughs> i i just uh, i disagree uh i think in fact i i i have a what, what would be the ideology i guess what what's the what's the issue that the, the that i guess the the, the, the ideology are standing for yeah uh, the ideology is, uh, if you will, is that these these 20 folks want a more democratic House of Representatives and the, the leadership wants a less democratic House of Rep, small d democratic House of Representatives. Yeah. And so I think this whole narrative that these people are awful and horrible and holding up, you know, I 
I, I find that I don't think they're idiots at all. I think that they did a reasonable thing. They, they looked at the numbers and they said, hey, we have a chance to uh, leverage our necessary votes to get some things that we think are really important that we wouldn't get otherwise. And I'm not generally uh, you know, saying more power to you, Matt Gates and, 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 and they're, they're the, Robert, Matt but, Gates is the real hero here. Well, you know, and, and obviously there were a few people in that coalition who are sort of much more in it just to kind of uh, promote their brand, if you will, and do other things. But I think there are also the Chip Roy's and other folks who really do have sort of deep commitments to process and, you know, certainly that for a lot of people may not know this, that the House of Representatives is not really so much of a democracy. Uh, the leadership tends to have a very, very heavy hand. And oh, yeah, I, I, I think that I think what the uh, Freedom Caucus folks, for the most part, they were Freedom Caucus folks uh, did was was smart, was good politics. And like I said, more power to them. And honestly, it's the sort of thing that people sort of inside the beltway, political junkies think, oh my God, this is horrible house in chaos, McCarthy humiliated. But to the vast majority of America, this is nothing. This is a little blip. Oh, no, no. I, I, I agree with you on that, that, that uh, this is much more an inside baseball story, right? And it's it's for political junkies. It's fun and the drama and 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 all that uh but no to the average american i don't think it makes a bit of difference and i think a couple months from now um you know no one's going to remember oh it was 15 votes right i mean again i i think uh, uh certainly not among our listeners but i mean i think among the populace in general um a lot of people would be hard pressed to to name the speaker of the house right um so I, and I, I mean i think we're in a situation where uh, at least, uh, well, at least in the House, we have almost a three-party system. Right? We have Democrats, Republicans, and Freedom Caucus Republicans, and that's how it works when you have a multi-party coalitional. You know, basically, the, the establishment Republicans have to form a coalition with the Freedom Caucus Republicans to get anything done, and you—it would be foolish to not use that leverage to get more of what you want and what you believe in. And honestly, some of those things. Seem pretty reasonable. Now we're still waiting on. No, I and I and yeah, I did want to talk about that because I I agree with you on on some of that. Some of those I think uh, some of the reforms that they requested I think are are smart and reasonable, um, and uh, beneficial. Uh, a couple of them are just um, um, headbangingly stupid. But. Well, there there are there are <laughs> things that are symbolic. There are things that I think make a lot of sense, and we haven't we don't have all the details because the House hasn't voted on its rules packages and so there are rules things then there are promises that are given and those are not binding in any way but but let's start with what i think are the reasonable things like for instance one thing that's been mentioned is giving members 72 hours to look at legislation before there's a floor vote that to me seems I'm, pretty i'm all for that yes no, and i think a lot true. of people would probably think my god they don't have that already no sometimes you just say hey vote on this no it's good we we vetted it just shut up and get in line. And so I think that's reasonable, right? Um, uh, I would say, I mean, there, there could be um, detail issues to work out on that kind of proposal. Well, right? of course, I mean, there are always. Of, you know, you always have, when you have, you know, flurries of four amendments and so forth and, and all that. Um, but yeah, in principle, the idea that 
everyone ought to be able to read the bill before they vote on it, I think is a good one. Yeah, absolutely. Or uh, another thing that may be part of the formal procedure is allowing more open amendments on the floor. And now that could complicate yep. things because generally speaking, the leadership just likes to push things through as in a constrained manner as possible to not mess anything up, to have people put in poison pills or other things like that. But, you know, part of, I would argue, a part of legislating is being allowed to offer amendments and have them be voted up or down. So in principle, I'm okay with that as well. Yeah, no, agreed. Uh, I, I like that as well. There's also an interesting proposal. I don't know if this will get in from, uh, from Thomas Massey, that if Congress doesn't meet, if the House doesn't meet a budget deadline, uh, that they would agree to pass a continuing resolution with 98% of current funding so that it would give them somewhat of an incentive to, you know, uh, actually get some sort of a package to put some sort of pressure on. And you and I in the past talked about some sort of incentive structure on CRs. And I think we ended up concluding that I think it was like a lot of things we talk about. I was enthusiastic about it in some way. And you said, oh, I don't know about that. And then I, maybe I came around a little bit, but, but I don't know. Um, what do you think about that one? Well, I'm, I think I'm, that probably sums up where I am. I'm sort of, eh. <laughs> and, you know, no, I mean, it's, to me, it's to me, it's that that strikes me as a little gimmick. Yeah, right? I, I, I think probably a little so. gimmicky and not really enforceable. Exactly. And that's when we get into that. I mean, just like calling for separate votes on each of the 12 appropriations bills, which is how it's supposed to happen. But what always happens right. is everything's rolled up into an omnibus because it's hard enough to get the votes for one thing. So I, that's one of those things that's a promise that I think is going to end up not being kept simply because you need the Senate to go along. and It's just going to get messy. And that will go by the wayside is, is kind of my prediction there. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, I would be all for that, you know, return to regular order type type stuff. Um, but again, the problem is, uh, you know, one, you can always change the, you know, when, when Congress does this and makes its own rule changes, you can always uh, change them back or override them um, with, no, a, with a majority. Now, you may or may not always have that simple majority, but it's one of those. Um, uh, I think, you know, when it, it when you're not talking about a leadership fight, when you're actually talking about legislation, I think there there would be a tendency for the party to hang together. Um, and some of these these procedural things could could well be go by the wayside or, you know, the suspend vote to suspend the rules to do this or that. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, there are some other things that I think are much more simple. Not, not that that doesn't mean it's a bad thing, because when you do have to take those votes to suspend, there's there's a political cost. Sure. There, right. Well, so you, I you can't I, do it too often. I don't know how much of a political cost there really is, because it's sort of hard to run an ad against someone. So they voted to suspend the rules and uh, on H.R. 1264 or something. Like, oh, well, my God, we can't vote for that. Person. Well, no, but there's a, there's a political cost in that, you know, when you've got this close of a um, uh, this slim of majority. Sure. And everybody's got to hang together. Uh, there's going to be some people saying, well, yeah, I'll vote to suspend the rules, but here's what I want. Right. Except, so. But and that's well, that's part of, I think, what drove things here is that this would have been, I believe, an entirely different sort of situation, even if Republicans had controlled the Senate. But the fact that they don't control the Senate or the presidency means that aside from two things. The, the budget and the uh, debt ceiling that'll come up this year that Republicans don't really have to govern. And I think it's a lot easier to be out there, you know, screaming 
hell no, when you know that there's really no chance of you being able to govern anyway. And, and honestly, there are a number of folks like the like the Boberts, like the the, the Green actually was voting for McCarthy, yeah. but there there's a faction in the Republican Party in Congress that really I don't think has much interest in governing and wouldn't necessarily know how to do it if they had the opportunity to do it. They're much more comfortable. It's a lot easier. It's a lot more fun to be screaming at the people in charge. But all of a sudden, when you're responsible for something, well, that's that's entirely different. That's a lot more difficult. I That is very true. I agree with that 100%. And so that's why I think like on some of these proposals, they're going to be more, I guess, symbolic. And like, for instance, this idea that Congress, the House will present a budget that balances over 10 years. Okay, maybe they'll do that. Or going back to the fiscal year 2022 budget. Yeah, but also there are a lot of defense hawks on the Republican side who are going to say, no, we're not going to cut. We're not going to take defense spending back 10% or more, something like that. So these are things that I think are just going to end up not being able to, sure, they're going to, there's going to be apparently a vote on term limits, which is unconstitutional, but hell, we can vote on unconstitutional stuff, right? And, and so I think there, there are a lot of these symbolic sort of things that people will be able to go back to their constituents and say, or sorry, that more importantly, right, the people who are giving them money say, hey, we we got to vote on this and uh, it didn't go through because of those bastards, but we we did this. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of go, symbolic yeah. stuff. But a little less symbolic, though, is what apparently is the guarantee that uh, that there will be three seats on the Rules Committee reserved for, well, not reserved for Freedom Caucus folks, but subject to the approval of the Freedom Caucus yeah. folks. And uh, honestly, that to me isn't that big of a deal. Now, typically, people may not know this, is that most committees in Congress, most standing committees, and the Rules Committee is a standing committee, reflect the majority-minority ratios in the chamber. So this Congress is roughly 50-50. There might be one or two more Republicans on a committee than others. The Rules Committee has always been different. The Rules Committee is always stacked very much in favor of the majority party. I believe in the last Congress, it was 10 Democrats to four Republicans, and I would expect it would be about the same this time. And so that would mean that three of those 10 would be Freedom Caucus folks. But honestly, that's not that far off because last I checked, the Freedom Caucus is around 25% of the Republican caucus anyway. So eh, that's, eh, I just don't think this, this whole idea that, that, you know, McCarthy gave away too much and was negotiating with terrorists. And I, I just think it's kind of an overblown media narrative. Um, yeah, I, I think the the getting seats on committees, that's sort of, strikes me as that's the standard type type of negotiations and concessions that you try to get when you've got, you know what I mean? A contested speakership. Um, and, and yeah, does it, does it really change things altogether? No, but it allows other voices in the room. And I, so I'm, I'm, yeah, I, I would agree with you on that, but I don't think that's an unreasonable demand. Um, uh, it might be kind of purely symbolic, but, uh, yeah, I I don't think I don't think McCarthy by agreeing to that gives up much. Yeah. And then that whole thing about the well snap allowing a snap vote to oust the speaker. Again, that I don't think that's that big of a deal or that that's how it used to be before uh before the Democrats took over and you know that 
If you don't have the votes, you don't have the votes. And so it could maybe slow things down a little bit. But honestly, I don't think there's going to be the stomach for that. So to me, that's very much a symbolic thing as well. And I, I expect you would agree with that, right? Well, no, I disagree with okay. a little bit on that. It just in, 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 it invites uh, chaos, right? Um, it's almost like a sort of a, a filibuster light. Uh, what, you know what I mean? Where you have, except where you have one person who can, uh, you know, all of a sudden say, well, hey, hey, I want a new speaker. And, you know, and then everything's going to grind to a halt. Um, so I think that's the that's the problem there is the um, it, it, it puts that that small minority in the position to say, listen, if I don't get X, um, then I'm going to, you know, do this and, and just, you know, throw throw a wrench in the works. Um, and no, it's going to, it's not going to come to anything. It's, you know, but, but, uh, all of a sudden, you know, whatever you're working on gets shoved aside and it's, it's, you have this dumb speakership fight again. And, um, yeah, I don't see that happening. It's just, just because it's so small of a delay. And after a while, I think if someone tried to do it more than, you know, more than a few times, I think the, the internal pressure, even from that person's own Freedom Caucus, radical right, whatever you want to call a colleague, would they, they would end up not doing that very so I, I don't think that's going to be an issue. And that's how it was, recall, that's how it was under the last two Republican speakers. And uh, you know, yeah. who by the way, we should point out that uh, the Freedom Caucus folks essentially forced out of the job. They said Paul Ryan and this job's no good. And John Boehner, you know, went went back to his Merlot and cigarettes and you know, that sort of thing. But uh yeah, I, I like I said, I think this is much ado about very, very little and inside the beltway thing. And honestly, I was I was fascinated. A lot of us, I'm sure listeners are fascinated. But in the end, now the House can get back to with a tiny little delay to the important business of looking at Hunter Biden's laptop. Yeah. Well, I, again, my my sense is uh, I, I don't like that. I mean, I guess the other the other question would be the the. Um, threshold that you need to call that snap election and i suppose if it's one one to, to five uh does five make it that much different nah. not really um one you can have uh, just basically but, you're saying any jackass uh you know, sort of yeah. jump up and <laughs> any jackass who wants to get himself on tv for for a, a brief period of time um can can do so yeah i, I, I don't think it's going to happen that'll helpful. be my prediction but uh in the end, like I said, I think you underestimate the jackasses. Well, I, I, I don't think I don't think so, because even the jackasses are at least somewhat strategic about things. I don't think there's anyone in Congress who is just a flat out complete idiot. And, yeah, that's even Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is who is clever in her own way. Uh, Jewish space lasers aside, but um, which speaking of, uh, I don't know, speaking of, that's a weird segue, but, you know, early on in this process, Donald Trump tweeted out on, on tweeted out, I don't know what they call it, truth that wasn't it, on Truth Social, his, his support for McCarthy, and it seemed to have absolutely no effect, even among people who were voting for Donald Trump for speaker and holding up Trump signs. I think Marjorie Taylor Greene yeah. did that at one point. So I wanted to get your take on that, the, the fact that Donald Trump said, hey, do this, and everyone just said, what, who? Maybe they did, just don't have true social accounts. I don't know, but what's <laughs> your, I, I don't, but what's your take on that, Jay? 
No, my my take is that uh, Trump's influence uh, is waning, um, and you know, Trump Trumpism is sort of now bigger than Trump. Um, I think this is of a piece with uh, how the the midterms turned out. Right, you had the the big Trump endorsed candidates uh, who who got significantly fewer Republican votes and fewer votes overall than than your more mainstream. Um, uh, candidates. I'm thinking like, you know, uh, Herschel Walker and compared to Brian Kemp. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I, I think it's, it's just a matter of, uh, Trump is, has become and in, in will be continued to, to become just more of a liability. Uh, and yet, right. You know what I'm, I'm, and yet the way the Republican, the way the presidential primaries, particularly on the Republican side are structured, uh, Donald Trump still has a very reasonable chance of being the nominee. Um, possibly, but but looking at um, one, that's that's kind of a ways off yet. And two, looking at even early polls, um, shows DeSantis ahead of him. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I wonder about you know some again. Of those polls, this is this is this given- is among among the Trump, you know, voters, right? Trump faithful type type people. Um, they're they're sort of fine with DeSantis uh, in that he offers him sort of the Trumpian policies, uh, a little bit of the, the Trump uh, attitude, but but you know not the crazy election denial stuff, um, and all the other things that, that that go with Donald Trump. Well, when you say crazy election denial stuff, uh, just keep in mind that I think somewhere over half of half of the voters in your party be- believe to some extent in the crazy election denial stuff. So uh, that's a, that's a mainstream Republican position. Well, um, <laughs> so, you know, maybe, 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 but what I'm saying, maybe what I'm saying is, is uh, Trump is, is uh, not reaching that majority uh, either among people who are getting polled or, or uh, it doesn't have that, uh, that, that poll uh, among those those dissenters who wouldn't even go along with it. Yeah, I, I think that things things might change a bit once because DeSantis really hasn't been put in put into the fire at this point. I don't think in any very real sense has. I mean, Trump's taken some shots and so forth, but I think things might change considerably. People know what they're getting for better or for worse than Donald Trump. Ron DeSantis is still, I think, somewhat of an unknown quantity to a lot of folks. I mean, not. Perhaps us, yeah. not perhaps. But here's the thing: it doesn't. Florida. But what I'm saying is, it doesn't have to be Desantis. But the point is that to say that Trump has a stranglehold or is the leader, he's he's not. Oh, I I, th- I think he still is until and usually usually at this stage, right? I mean, it's it is the um, the guy with the biggest name ID. If it's a former president, that's that's who is the. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, it, it's it's unusual, I guess, that you'd have a former president trying to run again. That's. It's not that it hasn't happened, but um, yeah, I, I would I would think that the natural front runner, uh, if you ask Republicans, oh, who should be the nominee in in twenty twenty four, you know, the the first name off their lips would you would think would be Donald Trump, but it's not, and I think that's significant. Well, I I I don't know if I hope you're right or not. We talked about this before, but but we shall see. I have I have learned to not count Donald Trump out prematurely. And uh, I you know, once burned on that in a big way back in 2016. I'm, I'm not going to make that mistake again. But anyway, I, I wanted to move on to something well, still related to this, uh, at least the, the House Speaker thing. 
because we get a little bit off on the Trump stuff. But what do you think this tells us, if anything, about the upcoming debt ceiling vote? We don't know when that's going to happen, but we know that at some point in 2023, probably the second half of the year, Treasury is going to run out of various accounting and other sort of tricks, and we will need to raise the debt ceiling. And does this this vote, the behavior of these 20 or so folks, tell you anything, give you any insight as to you know, make you more concerned about what might happen then? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be a it's going to be a crazy, uh, you know, week or two <laughs> leading up to that. Right. Of of all kinds of of crazy demands and brinkmanship and all that, I think we we still pass the debt ceiling at, at, at the end of the day. But it's going to be, um, like I said, expect sort of grandstanding and brinkmanship uh, from this this crowd. And, and it'll have very real effects. Was when that happened back in 2011, uh, the uh, the S and P downgraded the the credit rating of the U S. and the stock market took a pretty big tumble. So this is not a this is not a symbolic, no consequences sort of thing. And I would expect that this standoff will be longer. I think I agree with you in the end, we will raise the debt ceiling because if, if push really comes to shove, uh, a bill can be introduced to, to raise the debt ceiling, get it to the floor, you know, through a discharge petition. And, yeah. uh, you know, and I think if you take a look at the structure of the House, even if, say, the Democrats introduced that bill, they could probably get six Republicans to go along. And there are right now, I think, 18 House Republicans who are in what are called crossover districts, meaning districts that voted for Biden in 2020. And so I, the, the math, I think the politics works out. Uh, it might take a while because to get a discharge petition to the floor, the bill has to be in committee for at least 30 days. Then there's a there's a seven day le- seven legislative day layover for it. So what I'm saying, uh, these delays matter. But in the end, I, I find it very, very difficult to conceive that a majority of the House will not in some way, shape or form vote to increase the, the debt ceiling. Yeah, yeah, no, it'll 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 happen. But like I said, there'll be some drama getting there, and there'll be some real costs. I think I, I don't think this is going to be worked out in advance behind the scenes before. And I guess that's the big lesson I take from this is that I can't see McCarthy and the leadership going to these folks and saying, "Listen, we saw the the bad economic consequences of this in 2011. We want to avoid that. So can we work something out beforehand?" And just get a quick and simple vote. I think they're going to want to use this as a way to to, to grandstand, and it's gonna it's gonna hurt real people in their retirement accounts and 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 all sorts of things like that. And that's that's I have a I have a big problem with that, but I'm almost certain that's going to happen. I agree with you. Okay. All right. Well, we have other stuff we want to get to, and we are going to get to that uh, starting with. Chief Justice Roberts' annual report on the state of the federal judiciary in just one second. All right, Jay, you know, you know this. Listeners might not, but every year the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court releases a year-end report on the state of the federal judiciary. And in this year's report, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts, he started by, there's a narrative that comes before all the facts and figures about workload. And in his narrative this year, he told the story of uh, District Court Judge Ronald Davies, who he was the guy who originally heard Brown versus Board of Education. And as you would expect, 
Davies faced a tremendous public opposition, including, well, threats on his life from, you know, segregationists. And, but he remained undeterred, did his job, all that sort of thing. And obviously, Robert's message here is clearly, in my view, a response to the very real threats we saw to, against the justices in response to their rulings in Dobbs, like, you know, Justice Kavanaugh comes to yeah. mind. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I think that was entirely appropriate for Roberts to make this a theme of his report. But I got to say, I was disappointed that he didn't include even a mention, even a hint of the Dobbs opinion leak or that, uh, you know, the allegations about a Hobby Lobby decision leak. So, uh, Jay, what do you think? First, I guess, about what he did talk about and then what he didn't talk about. Um, what he did talk about, I mean, to me, that's sort of the standard boilerplate kind of stuff that you say um, at these these things. Um, on the second, again, I guess I I understand why he would want to avoid talking about those things, and maybe maybe one um, uh, you know take on it would be investigation is still going on. I'm not going to you know, open up that, that box until, until we have an answer. Um, that said, I still could have done stuff to, to reassure or to, I don't know, push back. I, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I guess I, if, if I'm him, I, I, I see the strategic decision he's making, right. And not bringing this stuff up, um, at that forum. Um, but I also see that, that, by not saying it, 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 it sort of, it is sort of the elephant in the room, if you will. And, uh, uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm not. Yeah, because I, you know, I, first of all, I, I guess my, 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 if going, my general point is I'm, I'm not sure why, you know, the court needs to do this kind of thing in the first place. Um, but, uh, but he does I, every I year. I mean, it yeah, but it does. Yeah. Um, so, so no, I think this is just sort of a, this, this is an awkward year to do it. Maybe that's the best way to, to you know, phrase it. Yeah. You know, I, I, to recall in last year's state, the 2021 state of the federal judiciary, Roberts had no problem talking about internal court stuff, right? It was a, a big, long thing, at least for, for these sort of, these sort of commentaries on recusal and the integrity of the court and all that. And yet this year, when there is a clear and obvious uh, internal threat to the integrity and legitimacy of the court, it doesn't even merit a, hey, by the way, remember, I have this investigation, right? And Robert's- Right. That's, I think you could have said, hey, you know, we're working on this. Um, Except you know, our Integrity we? is important, and that's why we're working on yeah, this. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And Roberts is supposed to be this great institutionalist, right, caring so much about the integrity of the court. And I got it made me wonder, well- what exactly ever happened to this leak investigation? You know, he didn't, for one thing. A lot of people are wondering that. Yeah, yes. back in, this was on May 3rd. So like eight months ago, over eight months ago at this point, Roberts appointed not a seasoned investigator or anything like that. Didn't ask the FBI. He asked the uh, the court's marshal, who uh, is a, a attorney. But as far as I could tell, and as far as I was able to research, has no investigative experience of this matter. Put her in charge of this and we have heard absolutely nothing since and i think to a lot of folks that seems highly questionable 
given eight months and you have this person, what was this, an investigation in name only, uh, some kind of updates? But we've had nothing. And I, I find that I find that unacceptable. Yeah. And, and again, I feel like the court is this this unaccountable that, that, that the justices, many of the justices have this idea. Well, we are above these sort of the plebeian, you know, transparency. Well, just trust us. You know, trust us to recuse ourselves. Trust us when, you know, that we don't have financial uh, or any other conflicts of interest. Uh, trust us that we're the good guys because we say we are. And, and you know that because we're Supreme Court justices. We're above it all. You you. Yeah. Yeah. And that's I, I have a big problem with that. Why? <laughs> OK, so uh, I guess we'll not stand. Uh, well, except, except, what are you do about it? Except exactly. Except it will. Right. I mean, the only thing, the only real lever that Congress has over the court is in funding. And that's a very that's a very blunt sort of instrument, essentially. And so, I mean, I get that the court was designed this way, but this goes back, to, I guess, to that idea that power corrupts right in its own very limited sphere. Pretty clearly, the Supreme Court is almost all powerful, and I would say, and I wouldn't, I, I will not use the word corrupt, but certainly, power, uh, this sort of unchallenged power for so long, I think, puts blinkers on people, and and I think, you know, John Roberts has been on the court for a long time, and uh, a number of the other justices have, and I think they lose sight of the fact that they are, they are human, and they do need some checks and somebody to. To say to them, hey, wait a second here. And if you don't get that for too long, bad things happen. Yeah, um, I view it a little bit differently. Uh, and a lot of that goes to the, the power of the courts. Um, and and I, I think it was, oh, I forget the Federalist one, um, 73 maybe. That's uh, about the court. But, uh, you know, relies entirely on its, uh, its, uh, prestige and respectability with the public. And I can see someone like um, Roberts, who is an institutionalist, taking the position that, listen, uh, if it, it comes down to airing our dirty laundry, um, that doesn't do any good for the court as an institution, for the rule of law as an institution. Um, uh, and, and that's why I don't want to say covering up um, because I don't think that's the case. And I don't know that's the case, but um, perhaps de-emphasizing uh, issues until you have, have definite answers. Well, there's, yeah, I, I, I see where you're, what you're saying, but I think there's a distinction to me between de-emphasizing and what seems like bearing. Yeah. And uh, I get, you know, I guess, like I said, I don't think the Congress. Or- I, I mean, I, I want to know. I I I am as curious uh, uh, and concerned about the, the leak investigation as you are, uh, perhaps even more. Um, and I've got I've got my theories on on stuff, but again, I'm not gonna um, not not gonna share them. But uh, at least not at this point until there there were more facts found. But. Um, but it, but if there's not a real investigation and we don't know, it certainly wouldn't be revealing anything to uh, uh, about. You don't have to reveal details of an ongoing investigation, but you could at least say, here is the team that is working on this. And here is when I have directed that they give an interim report or something like that. But it's been nothing. And, and again, I. Well, I think you don't want to do that. Well, at least 
I think you need to do something. Because right now, I think right now, it seems to me that that Roberts has just decided that, well, we just hope this kind of goes away and that people forget about it. And and again, that's I feel yeah, yeah. And maybe then in the you come back with you. Well, hey, I guess we'll never know. Exactly, um, exactly. Because too much time has passed, and you know, there's a whole new set of clerks now, and so yeah, it's just become very difficult. The time to get answers is very close to you know the time where the thing happened, and with every month that goes by, I think that becomes a lot less likely. But uh, to me, the only thing that Congress could really do is the next time they have the opportunity to uh, to to uh, confirm a uh, chief justice nominee is to ask for some guarantees that that person would, if in that office, would make some structural reforms to the court that involve transparency uh, in, in matters like this. And I would. Well, what, what I guess, like what structural reforms would you would you recommend? Would you want? You know, that, that's a that's a great question. I'm not I'd have to think about that a little bit more, certainly. But I would. I would certainly argue, at least just off the top of my head, to say one of those reforms would be fuller dis- financial disclosure would be would be clear recusal rules. Not saying that other people could force a Supreme Court justice to recuse, but right. that it's there, yeah, there would be clear recusal standards, more disclosure be standards, right lines that, that yeah. you could look to. Yeah, yeah. My argument essentially is that is that given that there are virtually no real checks on the justices because once you're in, you're in essentially. Uh, I mean, there, sure there have been, there, there's impeachment and removal, but again, such a blunt instrument that in exchange for that, it's not unreasonable to demand an even greater degree of transparency about financial dealings, about conflicts of interest and things like that. So I think that's entirely reasonable. And that's certainly something if I were in the Senate uh, questioning a potential nominee for chief justice of the Supreme Court, that would be something I would insist upon as a condition of my of my yes vote. Yeah, okay, fair enough. But that still doesn't get you your uh, leak report. No, I mean, that that chip is. Yeah, that, that that's a little different thing, because that's obviously a. Uh, well, we hope that's a one off sort of thing. Right. Because the yeah. idea that that somebody would leak a decision private, I mean, that unprecedented is, a, I think, a fair word yeah. to use. And that gets more to that's the word. Yeah. It would be very difficult to design some sort of a structure to prevent that kind of thing. God knows that administrators have tried. Right, right. That's yeah. that's sort of why I asked. Yeah. Because I think yeah, the, the the program, the policy, the reforms was don't leak stuff. Um, and I'm not sure what else you could do to Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, I think that's that is a much more difficult sort of sort of thing for sure. But I don't really see that happening. Uh, John Roberts isn't going anywhere and I think the Supreme Court will remain uh, essentially unaccountable for the foreseeable future. As uh, perhaps as it should. Well, maybe. Yeah, maybe so. Anyway, (laughs) so let's let's move on to kind of a related thing, because we're talking about the judiciary. So I thought this would be a good point, a good point to look at how much influence President Biden's appointments have had over. He's had almost two years now to make appointments. And of course, for most folks, I would guess the only appointment people are familiar with by name would be Justice Jackson. And that really didn't have much of an effect, right, because it kept that same six to three Republican to Democrat uh, appointee balance in place. But if we pull back a little bit and look at overall judicial confirmations, Biden has had 
more of an effect, I would argue, because he's had 97 confirmations to this point. That's higher than either Trump at 85 or Obama at 62 at this two-year mark. And in addition to Justice Jackson, how it breaks down, he's had 28 appeals court judges and 68 district court judges confirmed. Now, to put those numbers in perspective, there are 677 district court judgeships that are authorized by Congress, 179 circuit court judgeships. So what that means is that just over 10% of district court judges and 15% of circuit court judges are now Biden appointees. Trump confirmed judges at this point make up just under 30% of the circuit courts, 25% of the district courts. And then there's Obama with 33% district courts, 21% of the appellate judges. And my my expectation, Jay, is that uh, given that the Democrats have one additional seat in the 118th Congress in the Senate, I, I don't I don't see anything that would stop the pace of confirmations. And I would expect that by the time his term ends, Biden appointee should be somewhere around a third of the appellate courts and somewhere the low to mid 20 percent range for the district courts, which is kind of like along the lines of what Senate Republicans managed to do under Donald Trump. But that what's your take on that? I think that's I think that's the the numbers kind of speak for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Elections have consequences. There you go. There you go. But, you know, where um, where Biden is very different from Donald Trump is in the diversity area. Uh, For instance, three fourths of the judges he's nominated and have had confirmed have been women. Around two thirds have been people of color. And that includes 11 black women confirmed as circuit court judges, which is more than the number of. A black women confirmed as circuit court judges by all previous presidents combined. Uh, so that's that's a really big difference. And the Biden administration from the get go said we are committed to diversifying the federal courts in, in terms of gender, in terms of, of race. Uh, wh- what do you think about the, the racial and gender diversity focus from from President Biden, which, again, is much more than any previous president by a long shot, Democrat or Republican? Um, I, as, as with these things where I usually am, um, I, I, I'm troubled when the first, uh, qualification that one goes looking for is skin color or, or gender or anything like that. Um, I think, you know, we talked about this back when, you know, Biden said, I'm going to, you know, Supreme court appointees, I'm going to appoint a black woman. Um, I mean, that's, to me, that's uh, that's troubling um, for a lot of reasons. And it, it's not a matter of I, I on the one hand, I I support the idea of diversifying um, the judiciary. Right. That, that there ought to be um, uh, it, it. It shouldn't all just look like white men. Uh, there ought to be um, uh, people of, of, of all races, genders, uh, 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 religions you know, present and, and represented. And because I think that goes to uh, sort of the public view of the legitimacy of the judiciary. So I think that's, I think that's important. Um, But emphasizing it to the extent that the Biden administration has, uh, I think is, is a, is a problem. That's like the first grade. That's the first criteria. I, I, I will disagree somewhat. Obviously, I agree with you on the importance of have for for legitimacy reasons, but also I would argue because different different backgrounds, different 
experiences. People, women bring different things to a position than men, people of color to. Yes, to yeah, I've never, I've never, well, well, I've never, again, bought, I, I, I've never bought into that. I've well, I think it's just that, true as a matter of fact, but, but anyway, we, the idea that the experience of a man and the experience of a woman, a woman is going to be entirely different or it's going to be entirely yeah, the but, same and that but, they but, are. Well, somehow, how does that, how does that affect your reading of precedent of, of the, of the judge, the judge of that, the job well, of a judge? Because the idea right? that the job of the judge is to be some sort of computing machine and to even, I mean, I know there's this, this fiction on some folks in the right that well we just look at the we just look at the text we just look at the intent but the fact of the matter is is that in so many ways the job of judging is a subjective judge especially i would argue uh at the district court level where most of these appointments are being made and so therefore no these- that's a good point on the the yeah the district court what what we're talking about district cuz again district court judges it, it's a different job than yeah. an appellate and supreme court judge and that's where most of these cases start and and stop in fact so i think but but to the second but where i would disagree with you is that the Biden administration is starting from there I, I, to me there are there is a large pool of people who are eminently well qualified to be a federal judge. For instance, Jay, if if, uh, if if you were nominated to be a federal judge, I would I would be perfectly I think you would do a fine job. I and now Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, there, there there you go. And there are there are thousands of people like you out there from both representing both Democrats and Republicans who could step Hundreds. in. Oh, I I think there are thousands actually because <laughs> there are there were something like 900 uh, authorized judgeship. You're always, you're always, you're always saying how I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm unique in my, uh, my word. But go ahead. I'm, but I'm just I believe there are thousands of people who any Democrat or Republican could pick. And so, just saying that, well, of these thousands of people who are all eminently qualified, let's take from this eminently qualified pool someone who is who brings something additional, like. For instance, gender diversity or racial diversity, that sort of thing. That so to me, that's not that's not denigrating. That's not lowering the quality of the judiciary. It's just picking from an otherwise entirely qualified pool, and that's where I think I disagree with you. I don't think that they're saying that. Well, we will pick a woman, or we will pick a. Uh, uh, that's what he said. But but no, but yes. <laughs> my point, though, I, may, maybe I'm not articulating it well enough, is that yes. But that doesn't affect the quality of the judging if the if the pool in general is all very well qualified. So so what? Agreed. Agreed. No, I agreed. But okay. that that gets back to my um, uh, it, it's 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 still the the um again looking at at, at the numbers um and thinking back to the Jackson nomination and the statements he made there. It it's such a plain sort of um. We're going to pick the the most qualified person uh, who who fits our our demographic profile. And I say, so what? Um, if the most qualified person who fits our demographic profile is very well qualified and is as well qualified as say uh, several dozen white males who I might have picked, yeah. so what? Because it, it's generally um, bad form to hire people based on their their race or their gender but it's but it's not based and on their and race that's, or their and gender. that's i think a, a lot offensive to a lot of people 
so it's it's it, in in terms of of look if you're saying um and and it i think it does no one any good uh, all the way around i guess i'm not following um, your argument because on one hand you're saying you said that you believe that race and gender diversity in the courts is a good thing at least for yep. legitimacy reasons so yep. given the fact that you believe that you are arguing against selecting people who bring race and gender. I, you see what I'm saying? I, I guess, how would we... I'm, 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 I'm objecting to making that the, the highest goal, the first goal, which is, which is what I think President Biden has explicitly said he's, he's trying to do. Um, I, I, to me, it shouldn't matter of the... I mean, can, can you imagine the, the, uh, the, the idea of um, you file a lawsuit and you're like, well, um, you know, your first question is, well, hey, what, what color is the judge? Well, no, of right? course not. I mean, my God, that, that's, that, I mean, that's, but that's, I think that would. I don't think that goes to your point, though, because the point to me is, is that, now, yes, I would agree with you if, for instance, said, well, we have these really highly qualified white males and we have a distinctly less qualified yeah. hispanic female you're, we're going to say you're saying you know i get that there's a whole pool of people who are qualified yeah yeah and 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 so why not just uh of that qualified pool uh focus on on uh picking more minorities so exactly. that there's greater representation exactly yeah yeah so and and i guess i guess maybe my my problem with that maybe it's more of one of degree rather than principle right okay um if your first question is the um so say you get you get the um uh the resumes in of, of here are our potential folks who are interested in the job um if your first question is which ones are the minorities that that troubles me if you elevate that that criteria uh, above. Okay, I think uh, here uh, what from, you're from saying. that qualified pool. Okay, I, th I right? think here what you're saying. If, if especially if you're focusing on legitimacy issue, if there are a significant number of folks who believe that that federal judges were chosen based on more than anything else, based on their color, based on their gender, and that that means that they are that more qualified people are not being selected, even if that's true or not, if that's the perception because of how it, the messaging is going yeah. out. All right. That seems, that seems reasonable to me. Okay. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, so, and, and um, yeah, and I look, I think there, each, each uh, judge has a, a great individual story that he or she can tell. Right. Um for one thing, I think it would be great if you, I mean, the, the Biden administration has, and this has been sort of quiet, right? There's been more uh, appointments from folks from like the public defense bar uh, bench, right? Yeah. Have, have, have been, been appointed than, than prior. And part of that's more just, it's an ideological thing. And, um, but, but there's a something sensible to that too. And likewise, I mean, this is sort of my prejudice is I would like to see more judges who have, civil uh you know litigation experience right um uh that's sort of a, a common argument or, or or 
complaint that uh, you get these judges who just kind of spent their whole lives in the prosecutor's office uh, and then they're dropped into a, you know, right. a big civil antitrust case or something. And, you know, um, uh, but and, and a lot of these these folks have have great personal stories to tell. Um, and and I guess my. My complaint is when you just look at that that one criteria, um, uh, you you overlook some other people who might have some great personal stories, um, and and you you send the message that this is what's most important to us, and I I I think that's a bad message to send. I I don't entirely agree, but I think it's a it's not an unreasonable point. I'll say that so, uh, and. Just kind of to pull back a little bit more to give folks a sense, kind of since we're talking about the state of the judiciary, uh, right now there are 408 federal judges who've been appointed by Democratic presidents to 280 that have been appointed by Republicans, and there are 82 seats that are vacant according to the last stats that I have. There are almost always a bunch of vacancies uh, going on there. Uh, Though I should point out that that number is kind of misleading because you look at that, it's like, oh my God, there's just all these Democrats. Yes, yeah. but that's a 6-3 Republican majority, appointee majority on the Supreme Court. And also, if you look at the circuit courts, there were 13 of them. Seven have Democratic, Democratic president-appointed majorities, including that sort of D.C. circuit, which is kind of the first among equals, if you will, circuit court. They have uh, seven Democratic president-appointed members to four Republicans. And so now, again, the, the Supreme Court's what matters the most. We could have a discussion about the D.C. Circuit. Uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> and well, how, how it got there and, and Obama's uh, appointments. But it's right, another day. But I'm saying that that's so I, people might not. That might be kind of surprising, kind of the, yeah. how many more. But generally speaking, once you get a once you get a federal judge in place, it's not like they're going to say, hey, maybe I should go get a job at Hardee's or something like that. I mean, that's a it's a it's a good job. And they, they certainly earned them. And uh there, there's a, there are lifetime appointments for a reason, and so they, they tend not to move around a whole lot after that point. And so, which Correct. is why you have this history of, you know, you still have a bunch of Clinton people, Obama people, and so that's why you have so many of these still Democratic. And that doesn't even get into judges who are in senior status, who count but don't exactly count, and it gets a little, right? So, so yeah. But uh, So I'm saying Democrats, there are still plenty of us out there in the courts, so good thing. <laughs> Anyway, so before we go today, I thought we could close uh, with some uh, recommend with some recommendations. What what do you got for us, Jay? Oh my gosh, I thought I thought you were going to lead off because I'm, I can I'm still sure thinking. I can lead what off. Can I rec- what can I rec- what can I possibly recommend? Not a problem. Okay, I, go ahead. I have something fun to recommend. Uh, it's a show called uh, Year of the Rabbit. Uh, it is uh, it stars uh, Matt Barry. I don't know if you know Matt Barry. He's uh, he is. Uh, People will know him a lot more as uh, the vampire Laszlo in What We Do in the Shadows. I don't know if you've seen What We Do in the Shadows. I love, okay, that's my recommendation. I love What We Do in the Shadows. Okay. <laughs> well, well, it's, if you take that character and you make him a Victorian era detective in, in London, you get You're the Rabbit, basically. It is just filthy. It is hilarious. Uh, they only made six episodes. They're like 20 something minutes. They were going to do a second season, but it was like, covid hit and then they didn't but uh it is uh it was just so much fun i've had so much serious 
downer kind of stuff going on. It was just wonderful to just take a little break from it all. This is a fat, it was a, just a fun little find and you have to get BritBox to, to get it, but it's, you could probably get a free trial. I don't know, but anyway, totally worth it. There are only six episodes. So what that's like, like three hours. There's not even three hours of viewing, but a lot of fun. And I highly recommend year of the rabbit. So Jay, and your recommendation. You okay. Say? No, I, I have come. I, I, okay, so, I have a thought. Um, my, uh, a colleague of mine, a colleague slash client, uh, of mine, um, is, is very much a, a adventurer and, uh, he is, as we speak, uh, climbing the summit, the tallest summit in Antarctica. Uh, he's taken this, this wow. like month long trip. Um, and it's, it's a crazy trip even just to get there. Um, to climb this mountain. But anyway, as a Christmas gift, uh, he got me uh, the uh, Ernest Shackleton, the story of endurance. Okay, um, yeah. About the Shackleton expedition, which uh, the, the book actually came out in like the 1950s, uh, but it was kind of repopularized uh, in the 90s. So that's what I, I read um, uh, sort of over Christmas and when we had the, the deep, deep freeze, howling, howling winds, um, uh, negative temperatures here. I, I bomb cyclone. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and if you haven't read it, it's, it's one of those that it's just astounding of, um, you know, look back to the, the days when, uh, you know, ship, ships were made of wood and men were made of iron, uh, type thing. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh huh. Um, cause it's, it's incredible how these guys survive. And, and I'm, and I'm thinking like, I, I'm, I'm sitting here in Cleveland and we had, uh, you know, winds of like 50 mile an hour winds, uh, and you know, wind chills of you know, negative 20 and stuff like that. And, and you read about what these guys are going through, um, uh, and and some of the, the sailing rescues where they're, they're absolutely soaked to the bone, and it's like this it's like 50 knot winds, uh, I mean, times 100 knot winds, uh, you know, on the, 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 the southern ocean. I mean, it's um, it's absolutely insane. Um, but, but they survived and, uh, you know, some of them, at spoiler least. Alert, but, yeah, yes. <laughs> no, no, all of them, all of them, survived. all of them, every single one. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, it's, it's absolutely, um, you're, you're just like, how can there's like one guy has a heart attack, uh, you know, and then they're like, well, you know, he had a heart attack the other day, but you know, <laughs> yeah. a couple days off, he's back at it. You know what I mean? Sort of the, you know, yeah. Well, I, you know, that, that actually, that, that book is, is sitting right now, uh, probably 20 feet away from me on my bookshelf. I have not read it yet. I got it as a, a gift a few years ago, but maybe I'll move that up on my list. Thanks to your recommendation. So there we yeah, go. Yeah. And it, again, it's just one. one of all those, you, 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 everything you, you read through this and you think, okay, now they're finally got stuff sorted out and then something else goes wrong. And like, what else can possibly go wrong? Uh, well, it's gotta it, be uh, something because there's a hundred more pages. Just, so yeah, you know, they just get through it. Yeah. Get away, uh, so so, so that, that's my recommendation. All right. Um, uh, finally, before we go, I want to thank uh, Kalina and Andrew for their recent and very generous support. And also, again, there were a few people at the very end of December who uh, gave some very generous support to Trey. And thanks so much. You know, I checked in with Trey just a few days ago, and he actually posted a thing on our Discord saying he is still back on track to be back on the show in February. And we are very much looking forward to having him back. So we're going now, we, Jay, you, you and I still have a uh, 
bonus midweek show to do, and we have a lot to talk about. Yeah, I mentioned Trump's taxes. Looking forward to 2023. Maybe some stuff on George Santos and the lying liars who run the GOP. <laughs> I have a crazy idea in a large house. A lot of stuff. I'm looking forward to it. And if you are a supporter, that will be in your feed midweek. And if you're not, hey, we hope you consider becoming a supporter because you get that and a lot of other good stuff like ad-free versions of everything we put out, that midweek show. And so, uh, yeah, you can find out more about that by going to patreon.com slash politicsguys. And if you'd like to support us on Venmo, we're at politicsguys. And you can also support the show through PayPal. All those links are in the show notes every week as well as at politicsguys.com slash support and if you would like to get that midweek show but you are not in a position to financially support us totally not a problem just send me an email i'm mike at politicsguys.com and i will get you set up with that and whether you're a supporter or not it really does help to rate and review the podcast on whatever app you happen to be listening on subscribing and sharing episodes on social media and if you want to get in touch with us for any reason whatsoever you can do that at mail at politicsguys.com we're also on Facebook and Twitter, and you will find links to that in the show notes every week. And finally, a special thanks to our executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby. We'll be back with a new episode for you next week. We hope you join us.